Well, yes. Hooray. Hooray for us all, really. How do I move the... Every single time I... Come on. Everything is just, like, broken and crappy. Oh, when I said I'm going to murder someone, the cat, like, turns and stares at me dramatically. (laughs) Welcome back to Check This, Please, a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check, Please to remember all of the awkward love confessions. Today, we're going to be looking at comic 2.10, Shinny, which was originally posted on March 22nd, 2015. I am Secret, and today I am joined by... Tomato! Hello! Hey, Tomato, hey. Do you want to hear about this comic? I do want to hear about this comic. I need distraction from the supernatural shenanigans. After winter break, Biddy welcomes his audience to spring semester 2015 at Samwell. Following the chaos of Epic Hegster, Biddy sent Jack off with an encouraging note and some cookies. And now that they're back at school, Biddy finds a moment to check in with Jack as he's sitting alone and taping a stick before a game of shinny or outdoor hockey scrimmage on the frozen pond. Jack sighs and tells Biddy he's basically fine. Kent and I both owe each other a lot of apologies, according to Jack, who implies that he's not proud of something but he cuts himself off to conclude simply that they've had their differences. Jack then becomes wistful about his last semester of college and mentions that he's going to take a photography course. After a symbolic recurring homoerotic fist bump, Jack heads to the ice and announces that Ransom and Holster will captain teams for their scrimmage. The fist bump of homoerotic proportions. I guess. That image has been, I think, like... Has it been the header on her Twitter for a long time, or was it? Now I'm curious. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. It still is, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah. I I guess she must have been really, really proud of that fist bump. I mean, you know, hands are hard to draw? Well, one of them is just in a glove. Gloves are hard to draw? Are they, though? It's more like a mitt, frankly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't draw except sometimes and only badly. And speaking of art, Jack's obvious artistic skill uh, is brought up for the very first time in this uh, strip, which is very exciting to me. I think it's hinted at in one of the Samwell versus Yale strips where Bob says to Suzanne, who's talking about taking pictures of Biddy, that Jack is a better shot. So I think it's sort of hinted at that he's into photography sort of like earlier on. I completely blocked that entire conversation out of my brain. Well, it's just a really important conversation that's like full of really relevant information. So anyway, so just so people who aren't familiar with Shinny, Shinny is uh, informal pickup hockey usually played outdoors, usually on like an iced over pond. Often there's no major checking. There's no goalies. There's no equipment or very little equipment, just sticks and a puck. And you're usually not trying to break other people's legs. So play looks a lot different than it might look like in the NHL when you're all decked out, you know, from head to toe and padding. It's like a hockey tradition and apparently also a Samuel tradition. Growing up in a cold weather northern u.s city yeah that was that was pretty common like every every park would flood like the baseball fields or whatever in the winter 
and people would just like play outdoor hockey all winter. And my dad had the same experience growing up. That wasn't so much my experience in a place farther south, but certainly when my mother was young and lived in a more rural area, the there there were some ponds that would freeze over and people would play hockey on them. Yeah, there's no there's no ponds here, but it doesn't really get cold enough to do that anymore. Or rather, it does get cold enough to do that still, but it'll be for like a couple days and then it'll go back above freezing. So you can't really do it anymore. Yeah, I've I've never I've never played shinny. In fact, I've never played any hockey at all, but it would be a pretty common thing to see just like, you know, every every park would have a little like impromptu hockey rink. There are some NHL traditions that this sort of nods to as well. If you think about like the all-star game, which isn't really shinny, but it is an exhibition game where players from all sorts of different teams come together and play outdoors. That's like a nod to shinny as well. Uh, But anyway, here, Biddy's vlog doesn't tell us any of that. And in fact, doesn't tell us that much at all. But you had a very good question, which I want to um, address. You know, usually I feel like what Biddy is wearing in the comic is usually just like not notable in any sense. Like usually it's just kind of like a button down or a sweater or something like that. But I have no idea what he's wearing in this comic. And whatever it is, it is so ugly. So I genuinely am curious, what is he wearing? And and are you as offended by this as I am? Uh, yeah, it's really bad. Okay, here's what I think it is. I think it's a shawl collar cardigan over an undershirt, which is a bad look. Like, it doesn't make sense. And also for a shawl collar... The collar is going way too far down his chest. Like a shawl collar usually isn't that low. It's usually higher. If he were wearing exactly this, but instead of the shawl collar point coming to the center of his chest, like he's wearing a blazer, if it were like at a normal point, it would look fine. It'd be like, oh yeah, Biddy's wearing a sweater. Who cares? But instead he looks like a hot young business lady in like 2013 movie. Not a good, I don't like it. I don't, I don't enjoy it. And I don't think it looks good. Yeah, I was wondering if he was wearing a blazer because it kind of has the look or like the feel of a blazer, but then it seems not to have the right kind of structure. It's made from a fabric that drapes, not from a structured fabric. So I don't think it's actually a blazer. And if it is a blazer, it's a blazer that I would call typically a woman's cut, which isn't to say that only women wear blazers like that, but... Typically, you wouldn't see like like this is advertised for the kinds of clothes that it wouldn't be advertised alongside the kinds of clothes that Biddy usually wears. So it's just a mysterious thing. But I think it's a sweater. I think it's a shawl collar sweater. Is he wearing like a boat neck t-shirt? That's why I think it's an undershirt because it comes too low to be a normal t-shirt. It looks like a like a singlet or what do you call those? What's the word? What like a like a like a wrestling like underwear? Here's what happened. The first word that came to mind was wife beater. And I was like, oh, I don't like to call those shirts wife beaters because that's like, you know. So I was like, what were they called? And then I remembered the fictionpress.net friend I made in 2000, you know, like 
three who was Australian. It must have been after 2003. It must have been 2004, 2005. Anyway, she was Australian and she wrote homoerotic stories on fictionpress.net. We were buddies. I think we're still friends on Facebook. Anyway, she was an adult and had a child. And you know what? It was a great friendship. It wasn't weird. It was cool. Anyway, she always called them singlets in her story. So when I was trying to think about what to call it, I was like, what was that word? Oh, singlet. But the actual word I was trying to think of was tank top. And you're all welcome for that story. I mean, I wouldn't like dwell on this too much, but it does just kind of look like a boat neck, like a boat neck shirt to me because it seems like the the neckline is kind of horizontal. You know, he's experimenting with a style and I don't think it worked that well. I don't think we see this outfit again, so I guess he doesn't think it works well either. No, we don't see the style again. And it, it actually doesn't blend into the rest of his wardrobe very well. Like, he kind of consistently dresses like polished and preppy but this is like the kind of outfit that i would have said that like kyle was wearing in some like south park fic you know what's getting to me also is the shoulders very clearly have like I mean, I think it's just maybe Ngozi drawing shoulders, but it looks like he's got little shoulder pads in it. And it's really, it's really getting me. Yeah, on one on one side, it looks like there's a lot of structure in the shoulder. And on the other side, it's like, you, you can't tell. We have wasted so much time on this. I just thought it was so ugly. And I was like, what? What are you wearing? I'll also say that for me, this framing, as usual, gives very little information and really doesn't do much to add to the story. So I've come up with an explanation now for myself about why he's doing this. This is clearly not what's happening in this comic, but just, you know, come along with me down this road. So I decided to keep myself interested in Biddy's blog, uh, vlog sort of framings that in fact what he's doing is he's adopting hockey players like omerta you know how none of them ever say anything about anything and just use completely generic and interchangeable idioms to say nothing but he's practicing that um and this is a commentary on hockey's demand for for completely generic turns of phrase even from the most flamboyant personalities in the sport so that's how i'm reading this even though that's clearly not what gozi is doing but it makes it more interesting for me. I guess what he's technically doing here, like there is one thing he's accomplishing and it's dropping in the background information that they've been home for break and are now back. And I'm not totally sure how else you'd necessarily get that information. I'm also not totally sure it like matters. Only in a world where you're really married to Biddy's comings and goings, potentially because you're following his Twitter account, does it matter if he's been like home for winter break? I guess logistically it gives a little explanation, but it really does very little to add to the story. I guess it just kind of says that like, okay, time time has passed and now we're in the second semester. But one one fascinating thing happened over winter break and it's that Jack's ass accidentally texted the group thread 
Jack asked not only texted the group thread, it texted winky smiley faces and then smiley faces with noses. So of course the first question is how do you butt dial smiley faces? Second question, I guess, is like, well, you asked, how do you butt dial anything? Phones lock. Um, and so, yeah, they do. Not that this really matters. Obviously, this is just like a ha ha funny joke. Jack's ass is big. I guess if he had the kind of phone I had around this time, which was, oh, I guess maybe I had a smartphone by this time. But around this time, I had a phone that it was not a flip phone. You could like slide it two halves do you know what i'm talking about yeah i i do know i do know what you're talking about i got a smartphone i was forced to get a smartphone against my will in 2013 and i'm a pretty late adopter of technology and i was by far like the last one of my peers to have a smartphone like many years after everybody else had one. The iPhone was introduced in 2007 and this is happening in 2015. So I feel like Jack almost certainly has a smartphone at this point. Yeah, I got a smartphone in 2014, I think somewhere around there. Probably he does. Uh, although of all the people who wouldn't have a smartphone in this cast, it would be Jack. I guess maybe if he didn't lock his phone, people sometimes don't have locks on their phone. We see later, at least, you know, by next semester, he has a smartphone. So either he doesn't have one now and he gets one like over the summer or he already has one. My guess would have to be that he has one. Like how how could he not? Wait, actually. Yeah. I feel like we can like we can find this out. So keep keep talking and I'll I'll take a look. Well, the other option is that if he doesn't have one, it, it would be much easier. You would just press the buttons with your button, they would send. Maybe his ass just has magical dialing powers, like or magical sort of like powers of attraction. And like everything else around him, the phone is just attracted to his butt and presses itself against him. That seems like vaguely problematic, but it could be what happened. Oh, I was going to say that he's on the phone in Providence Falconers, the comic from the last semester. It looks like something that could be a smartphone because it's it's kind of like the width of his hand. I, I feel like he probably is, is meant to have one. That or um, I guess it's possible he has a Blackberry, but I'm not even sure they were still really making phones in 2015. No one I knew had a BlackBerry in 2015, so I, I don't know. I mean, no one yeah. I knew had a BlackBerry ever, but like they did exist and it would be funny if Jack had one, would it not? Someone I knew had a BlackBerry because she's from the town in Canada where they make Blackberries. So anyway, this doesn't matter. Listen, I fully think it's canon now that Jack has a BlackBerry. That's the only thing I accept. And he keeps, using, there's a little stylus and he keeps using it like well into like the 2010s. The other option is that he was just really happy one night and he just texted everybody's smiley faces and then faked it. Yeah, I think when people say, but dial what they mean is like some people's phones i think have the dial and i do think that like if your phone is in your back pocket 
then it is possible that because of body heat and or like shifting around, you might hit redial or hit like speed dial number one or something like that. However, I do think that like phones lock, so it's pretty rare. And also the idea that the phone would like unlock and you'd open the group text thread and you'd successively send a bunch of smiley faces is highly unlikely. I will say that I have in my life but dialed and but texted people back in the days before smartphones. Normally it was like hip or like bag texting people actually, but that was also in the days before group chats. So this is just a highly, I don't know, unlikely cir- circumstance, which is I guess why it's much funnier to me to imagine Jack thinking like, oh, this is a real great joke and then sending like a bunch of winky smiley faces. It's not a good joke, but he wouldn't know that. Uh, if you look at Biddy's Twitter, Biddy tells his followers a little bit more than we get in the actual comic. So this is another instance of the comic representing what Biddy's been tweeting about. Like it's the comic referencing the Twitter rather than the other way around. So uh, Biddy tweets, yes, Jack Butt texted the group text. And then he says, my day is made. And then uh, he follows up by saying, he shouldn't have admitted to it, rookie mistake. My phone won't stop vibrating from the constant chirping. Hashtag got your back. Hashtag holster has been waiting for this day. And then he excerpts the uh, group text thread. Okay, haha, very funny. You got me. My ass is big, I get it. And then holster texts, and it misses us more than you do. 20-something follows up and says, what did his ass say? That's where we get like, oh, it's gibberish, gibberish, smiley faces. It's actually not the same exact thing that that is shown in the comic, but, you know, close enough. There's no winkies in the in the text that Biddy reproduces. And then... Uh, 20-something replies, oh my God, his ass is the happiest part of him. And then Biddy says, friend, that would explain a lot. Someone who's not important because they're not a BNF says, I can practically see Holster's eyes shining with tears of sheer joy. And then Biddy says, if Holster were a shark, this faux pas would be a wounded sea lion. Yeah, Jack's ass probably is the happiest part of him. Think about that. I have nothing to say here that I can bear having said aloud. Okay, anyway. I think it's, I mean, well, I mean, I'd love to hear it, but like, I feel like it's, it's just awesome to me. Like, this is the stuff that I like about this comic. It's just like, not only does Jack have just like a very enormous ass, but like everybody else knows he has a very enormous ass and he knows he has a very enormous ass. And it's just like something everyone is aware of and they all discuss it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, and appear to be like pretty delighted about the fact, you know, it's like, this is not an ass shaming comic and I appreciate that. Maybe that's why his ass is the happiest part of him. It's the only part of him that hasn't been, you know, shamed for being, uh, I don't know, too gay. It's just the right amount of gay. Anyway, okay, listen. I can't, okay, I have to move on. I like can't talk about Jack's butt anymore right now because all I can ta- think about is, I don't know, bananas bullshit he gets up to. Okay, speaking of early in their courtship, before Biddy puts anything up Jack's ass, 
Biddy sends Jack some cookies. He sneaks some cookies into his bag, which miraculously make it through customs. Apparently Jack likes them because he's got a little smile on his face. That's the information. So you asked the question of what the effect of this is in juxtaposition with the Kent-Jack relationship we just saw in the last update. I guess my first instinct was to basically say like, okay, so Biddy gave Jack cookies and that's very nice. But Kent just tried to give him an NHL contract. On some level, the the, uh, point that the comic is trying to make you know, it can be interpreted as as not successfully making it. On the other hand, it's obviously like Biddy gives and Kent just tries to like take or like get what he wants. Or Biddy is supportive and is offering Jack emotional bolstering or something to try to pick him up. Whereas Kent just brought him down and was trying to like undermine Jack's sense of security. I just feel still so like hopped up on the the high octane emotion that was like so perfectly compressed in parse three that when I get to these cookies, I'm like, I don't care if Biddy is Betty Crocker incarnate and is about to, you know, nourish Jack through the most wholesome cookies of all time. Like, I don't give a shit about that. Give me back that emotion. And so I was wondering also whether this could potentially be like a bit of a narrative rest after the anxiety, I guess, of the last few updates. I think that your second interpretation maybe is what we're supposed to take away from this. Just so everybody knows, this is also part of why I got distracted. This is what Secret wrote in in the outline. Kent is venal, whereas Biddy is an angel in the house, and I believe his son will become a reputable barrister and win the hand of a Miss Emma Clark, the daughter of a well-regarded Holborn bookbinder, <laughs> while Kent will die ignobly and his son will be raised in an alt-house. <laughs> I did convincing. I think that Kent has proved himself not a reputable gentleman, and, you know, he will die in scorn and tatters. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. But, uh, but I don't, but like, I'm still so hopped up. I'm like, oh my God, Kent. Let's just move on. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. The next thing that happens to this comic is that Biddy does a figure skating jump. I'm sure. I'm sure. Somebody who knows what the hell is going on can tell you what kind of figure skating jump that is, because it definitely seems like the kind of thing that Ngozi would reference quite a bit in order to draw. And it does look pretty good. She links a video in the blog post, which is to a double axle. So I guess it's that. I do not understand what a double axle is. I know that it depends on how you jump and what direction you jump, but I don't know what it is. But I think maybe that's what he's doing. Here, here is the end, the beginning and the end of my knowledge of figure skating. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. When Brian Boitano was in the Olympics skating for the gold, he did two salkas and a triple Lutz wearing a blindfold. When Brian Botana was in the Alps fighting grizzly bears, he used his magical fire breath and saved the maiden's fair. So what would Brian Boitano do if he were here right now? I'm sure he'd kick an ass or two. That's what Brian Boitano would do. <laughs> what is that? It is from South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, director Trey Parker, 1999. <laughs> 
okay. Uh, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Well, that's the end of my. That's the end of my like information about how you actually figure skate. I guess I saw that movie about Tanya Harding. Anyway, um, yeah, this thing about we can make a play out of that, that is a callback, I think. But at this point, maybe it's like a running joke because I think we get like a couple of them. Um, I guess you could make a play out of that, although I don't know that being in the air would necessarily help you like do anything when you're playing hockey. And then you ask the question of do any of these moments like actually do anything interesting in terms of character development? And what I would say is character development no. Like, we already know that Biddy is a figure skater and it's already basically impacted the story as much as it's going to. And it's, like, informed his character as much as it's going to. I think this may be the point at which we find out, at least in the comic, that Chowder is from California in some very, very clumsy bit of dialogue where he's like, wow, the frozen pond. And then I think maybe Nursey is like, oh, you've never seen a frozen piece of water before? And then Chowder is like, I, it's not like we have it in California or like whatever. Actually, I think he says San Francisco. It's not like we have frozen ponds in San Francisco or like something like that. But generally, no. And then you also raise the point about this being kind of like a narrative rest. Yes, but I also think largely what this particular strip does is it tells us that this Kent Parson business isn't finished and that there's more to find out. So it basically, at the end of that arc, and you know, Jack says, leave Pars, and then he leaves. Even though he's left, what you're being told basically is, he'll be back, and there's more to do here. So it's reminding the reader to like, not forget about this. Yeah, so there is kind of like a structural thing being done here. It's just dressed up in all these panels that are not doing and then the next the next comic actually kind of continues what you've described as a narrative rest like Mm -hmm. there's nothing really plot related that happens in the junior show comic we have a couple comics in between the parse arc which is pretty heavy and the playoffs arc which is pretty heavy And then that immediately kind of like hops over into the graduation stuff, which is also pretty monumental. So these are really like two breather comics in between a lot of like really intensive stuff. And I do think that they're effective in that way. I just wish that maybe there had been something else happening besides a calmness, but... I'm glad I caught you. I just wanted to not check in. I'm sorry if I'm overstepping, but I felt like the end of the semester might not have been very epic for you. So he once again kind of enters into Jack's private business, but this time Jack is way less shut off. I mean, he's not like on the phone with his dad behind the building and then immediately sort of like, no, Biddle, like not for you. He's much more open. He shares a lot more about himself. So I do think that this is an effective parallel to that moment. And it also shows that the relationship has changed quite a bit since that first time that Biddy entered into Jack's anxious moment or, or, or some, like a difficult moment for Jack emotionally. And I think that's fairly effective as far as it goes. 
As a point of contrast, this is a development in their relationship. Like Biddy's learning how to read better when it makes sense to approach him and Jack is more open to being approached. So we are seeing on the whole, like over the long course of this arc, a development in in their relationship and they're getting more comfortable with each other. Does this in and of itself convince me that they're soulmates? No, but certainly like their relationship is developing. And so during this, you suggested that we kind of close read each piece of what Jack says following this question. And I think that that's a really good idea. Ha, thanks, Biddle, but it's fine. Kent and I both owe each other a lot of apologies. So what what do you make of that first kind of opening idea? So there's obviously two ways, I think, to read this. And I don't mean like in terms of a value judgment. I mean, you can read it in the Watsonian sense of what Jack is trying to say, or you can read it in the Doyleist sense of what is the comic trying to tell us. I think what Jack means is maybe harder to ID. He could really mean that. And it would represent a lot of like emotional honesty from him. Or he could be using it as just kind of like a pat phrase to get Biddy to stop asking questions and gloss over like a very deep, very fraught history. We have Jack here basically either being really forthright and honest about a relationship that had a lot of push and pull in it, or we have him glossing over something that's potentially just like more than he wants to get into with Biddy right now. However, what the comic is doing is it's telling us Kent and Jack owe each other apologies. And in order to settle this thing we just saw happen in the previous strip, they will have to apologize to each other And I think it would be really, really difficult to make the argument that they don't and that the comic isn't setting this up, but for the fact that a lot of people on the internet have argued that that's not what it's doing and have interpreted this in a completely different way. Jack is being too hard on himself and he's being like polite and magnanimous by saying that they both each other owe, they both owe each other apologies, but really it's Kento's him apologies. I don't know what to tell you about that. I so, have never found argument convincing personally, mostly because I feel like we've seen plenty of examples of Jack behaving in ways that could potentially require an apology to someone else that he then does not give, as indeed he does not ever apologize to Kent Parson for whatever. This is basically setting up an expectation for the reader that we will have some sort of conclusion to the storyline where they give each other apologies. If indeed that were not, that was not part of some kind of plan, 
then why would you include this? Why would you include that line specifically? Why would you include this conversation at all? Like the comic is not shy about showing things, even like emotionally fraught things, and then just never bringing it up again, never returning to it, never addressing it, never following through, et cetera. Like this is actually a relatively rare moment of something that happened in the comic being discussed by the characters as if they had lived through it. I anticipate, and I think a lot of people share this anticipation, that we were going to get some sort of scene where this exchange of apologies or essentially like making peace with each other and their past happened. But what we get instead is a scene where Kent Parson goes to Biddy and apologizes to Biddy and then also makes a point to say, if Jack thinks he owes me apologies, he doesn't. It would be rude of me to apologize to him directly because I know he's beyond this now. And I think we'll have to wait until we get there to assess whether or not that makes sense. There was a lot of anticipation for follow through on this particular line. I think the the author ultimately responded by by issuing a retcon within the text. Yeah, that's what I think as well. And I also think that if we take this moment as Jack really opening up to Biddy, as I think we're supposed to, it's hard to read this as anything other than Jack saying, honestly, we both owe each other apologies. And if we take him as sort of like cutting Biddy out of that experience, then that actually is doing the opposite of what we might expect this moment to be doing, which is, as you said before, Biddy learning how to read Jack and get like a real response from him. So it's hard to read it both ways. Either it's true that they owe each other apologies and then this is an effective character development moment or a sort of deepening moment for Jack and Biddy or it's not true and it's not. So then he pivots to I'm not proud of and then he cuts himself off. He doesn't say what he's not proud of. I have long thought that this was a reference to how he treated Pars after the OD and or the last time that they saw each other when he was so mean that shitty like can't talk about it or whatever and or just the way that he has handled conflicts between them since this you know the perfect 34 days or whatever i think that's probably some of what he meant i think that's probably like what he would have been getting at i do also wonder if it's not the case that he would have maybe been saying something like i'm not proud of like who i was at the time when we knew each other, or I'm not proud of like what I did in my own life when he was a part of it or or something like that. And in fact, I think part of why he cuts him off, himself off is potentially because he's embarrassed and he doesn't want to say it, but also because thinking about all of the things that he's not proud of is is too much and it's too difficult. I can see that as well. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
But I imagine, you know, it, it's realistic that he might have said something like, I'm not proud of what I've done or I'm not proud of how I've treated him or something like that. Like, I highly doubt he he was going to say a lot of very specific things and given a lot of detail. That's not his style. Again, the sort of joyless reading of why an author would do this is because you you want to know what he's not proud of and it's implying that he has done something he's not proud of and will find out what it was in terms of verisimilitude the fact that he's trying and it's difficult for him to sort of like stammer out his feelings for Biddy, that feels like how people talk. Like, this is good dialogue. This is how people talk to each other. The fact that this thought is truncated and never completed means that the other half of this statement remains to be filled in. And again, if we were at some point meant to get some kind of backstory, possibly through flashbacks, then maybe we would have actually found out what the other half of the statement is. But as it as it stands, it just never becomes anything. We 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 can guess based on the little tidbits of information we get, but we we never know. And then on the topic of Kent, he sort of concludes by saying, "He and I." We've had our differences, which is interesting to me because it implies a much longer and a much more deeply born relationship than just this one fight that happened. Right. And it also implies as part of that, a history of division in that relationship of some kind, some kind of major disagreement or major incompatibility, I would guess, based on just the way that Jack communicates in general. So that is pretty juicy. Like, I want to know. And I think this is designed to garner maximum interest, as you've said. A lot of people speculate about what their relationship consisted of. And I mean, I think the most realistic thing is probably that it, it probably didn't consist of too much. I mean, it lasted for a couple of years at most. And it's possible that they've been more in contact over the past six years than many people would presume just from reading the comic. But all we can really do is speculate. All we can really do is guess. You know, whatever whatever was happening between them, Kent thought it was pretty serious, and it really made quite a bit of an impression on him. And we will talk eventually when we get to year three about where Jack sees in himself in relation to that. So if you were going to sum up, like, what does it mean? And I'm curious what you think as well. I have my own sense that I've taken away from it, but that has also been so warped by like fanfic and time and dashed hopes that it's hard for me to kind of revisit this without all of that baggage. I think what it means to me is that Jack 
has been in a process of change or maybe growth or in some pretty profound ways considers himself different than he used to. As part of that difference, this relationship with Kent is not resolved and needs to be resolved, I guess. I mean, I I think that's what I take away from it. Well, I think in a sort of metatextual sense, it is building on the theme of who gets to interpret the text, who gets to decide what the value of a relationship or what the meaning of somebody's behavior or whether or not somebody is a good person or who's at fault is. Like, Jack is here basically saying, like, things are not so cut and dried. We've both done things to each other. That seems like, honestly, one of the one of the more emotionally forthright things, not only that Jack says, but that you get from this comic at all. Like, this is this is kind of the the closest assessment to how reality is that I can possibly recall because I don't know the way that people work and the way that relationships work is that, you know, somebody does something is probably something pretty crappy. And then the response that the other person gives is something that isn't great in its own way. But of course it was only spurred on by like the first thing that the first person did. However, the first person isn't thinking that like, you know, oh, I'm partly at fault for the treatment I've just received. They're just thinking like, wow, this person's just been an asshole to me. So then it goes back and forth and it escalates in this in this pattern of behavior that can become abusive or be, can become dysfunctional. I've been in tons of different relationships, basically, where, you know, somebody does something really, really, really shitty to me. And then my reaction, because it's part of like, a long pattern of shitty behavior is to freak out at them because it's not that I'm like angry so much about this one recent thing that they've done. It's that it's part of like a longer pattern of like shitty behavior that when all of it's stacked up together is actually pretty crappy. However, the one incident that I'm responding to is in and of itself probably not worth like the response that I'm giving. But then of course the person who I'm angry at, who's responsible for this like pattern of bad behavior, isn't thinking about the pattern of bad behavior. They're thinking about like, well, all I did was X, Y, and Z. So you're being crazy because your response is like out of control. And then they start to feel like they've been wronged or they've been aggrieved. But my guess is that some sort of similar situation existed between Jack and Parse, where they both contributed to a dynamic that was kind of dysfunctional because they were closeted teenagers in a high pressure situation who probably had very few outlets to try to figure out their own 
positions on where they were in the world. And you can probably see that, you know, they, they both have their own kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms. And you can very easily imagine, even without specifics, what this relationship would have been like, even if not all the time. So I imagine that what Jack is summarizing is some version of that. And who knows what they would have been fighting over. You fucked up this hockey play. You know, I can't believe, you know, we had we have to sneak around because you don't want to X, Y, and Z. Whatever it is, who knows? Maybe a combination of all of those things. You made me look stupid in front of, you know, in front of the rest of the team. You made me look stupid in front of these recruiters. Whatever. You made me look bad in front of my dad. Like, whatever. Like, you can sort of see how it's possible that in another world with another set of social circumstances at a different age, in a different industry, whatever, maybe these two guys could have a really good relationship but you can see Jack basically neatly summing up a whole pile of dynamics that I think the reader is being led to believe we would have gotten more insight into. I also always thought that we were going to get more insight into because of the structural setup. I mean, if you are not writing a narrative that is commenting on the structures of narrative, it is ineffective to set up a resolution that never comes. Like it, it's not necessarily a good technique for leaving your writer, your readers interested. And that's exactly what ends up happening with this moment. How do you think the fandom like understands this particular exchange or these particular comments? I don't know. I mean, I think there's like many different ways of thinking about it and it's entirely dependent on how you feel about Pars as a character. So if you like Pars as a character, you see this either as this like very complex statement about this process of relationship that they went through. If you really like Parse and you're like not into Jack or you're not into Biddy or both, you might see this as Parse didn't do anything wrong. You shut him out and he doesn't owe you apologies. You owe him apologies, right? Or as you've already pointed out, the other way around where Parse is kind of persona non grata and this is Jack kind of being too magnanimous and generous towards him. So I think it's really dependent on how you feel about the argument in the previous strip and what you think that shows about the relationship or about Parse as a character. It feels to me like it's not a super settleable question. I don't know, what do you think? Well, I think a lot of people in the fandom, especially people who are, I don't know, parse positive or pro-parse or parse stands or parse apologists or whatever you want to call them slash us, will essentially point to this as proof that um, parse is not a villain and Jack wouldn't have said this if he really thought that Parse was like a bad guy. And also it's sort of used as proof that, you know, he's not abusive and people shouldn't feel bad for liking him. 
because Jack is himself a dick and he says as much here. So if you're going to like and be forgiving of Jack, you ought to like and be forgiving of Parse as well. I think I've talked about this before, but one time someone was complaining about Parse on Tumblr. So I was like, hey, how come you hate Parse so much, but Jack does these things, which was very stupid. I shouldn't have done this. It was in a different era of Tumblr and I was worse at it. Um, and I don't remember what she wrote back, but it was like pretty angry. And I've always thought that was really interesting in part because of this moment, which I personally at least take to write be some kind of proof that Jack doesn't feel victimized by Parse. At least he doesn't say that he does and doesn't seem to indicate that he does in other capacities. Um, but I would say that that is not the narrative that the comic ends up going with. So it gets really tricky. I wonder if Jack is the kind of person who would feel victimized by someone. Like he feels victimized by circumstances. Like he feels victimized by like what's happened to him in his life. But it seems like it's too painful or too difficult to ascribe that to like a specific person. Maybe no one has ever done anything to Jack that he feels especially victimized by in a personal sense. I, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure if someone like were bullying Jack, would he feel victimized by that person? I don't know. Your ass is too big, Zimmerman. Well, I think a lot of, like, I think we've heard characters say that to him indeed, even in in this very strip. Oh, part of this Jack and Biddy, Biddy says, I didn't mean to pry. You just seemed a little tense. And then Jack says, oh, she didn't warn you. Apparently I have modes or something like a robot. I get worked up, I guess. This is fascinating to me. This, I mean, both the, the you know, we owe each other a lot of apologies, et cetera, et cetera. And also like this particular series of statements sort of taken in combination is really like the closest we ever get to actual introspection from Jack. This sort of speaks to an understanding of himself or at least an understanding of how other people perceive him. It's it's almost an admission that the things that have happened to him impact him. And he has a sense of himself that doesn't necessarily come through in a lot of the comic. And I guess I wonder what you think this particular passage means and what you think Jack thinks it means. I have a really unflattering first comment which is like this is the first proof we have that jack would pass the mirror test you know so i'm glad to know that jackson Roman sees himself as a self different from other selves or something this is part of why i still think of jackson Roman as on the spectrum yeah which is a huge part of my reading for him for whatever reasons I think that for me, this shows something about a closeness between Jack and Shitty that we have not seen in the comic otherwise. Like still, they've only talked, I think like once or twice in the entire comic, but this seems to point to a close 
closeness that Shitty actually helps Jack understand himself and that Shitty kind of reflects things back to Jack in a way that helped Jack communicate them to others, which I think is like really interesting and potentially a really beautiful thing about that friendship. We don't really see it in action, but I think it's cool to speculate about or to think about. Um, it could also be like a troubling thing about that relationship. Like I think there's multiple ways to look at it and it's really interesting. This idea that Jack has modes that he can't control like a robot has modes and unless it's a pretty advanced AI, like it may or may not be able to control its own kind of settings, right? That's usually programmed by whoever's programming. So for Jack to conceive of himself as someone who has modes, but also as a robot who like maybe doesn't have access to his own controls is pretty interesting. It says something about the responsibility he feels able to take for himself and his actions, I think in, in a way that is believable and also sort of like a little yikes at times potentially too. I also like the reading that Jack is on the spectrum. I do not believe for a second that that is the authorial intent. I used to think possibly it was. However, I believe it's now pretty clear that it's not. So I wouldn't like make the argument that it's canon or that it would be revealed at some point or anything like that. However, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of his behavior does match up with characteristics of effectively like being on the spectrum. Something that bolsters that, or maybe something that even without the spectrum reading is is just kind of like weird and bizarre, is that he says, I have modes like a robot. And it's like, no, you don't have modes like a robot. You have feelings like a person. But for whatever reason, it's easier to think of himself as like a piece of hardware that just does what it's told and works as it's supposed to than as like a person who like feels things sometimes and then like has moods. Because what he's describing is not like uncommon behavior for human beings like you feel different things, you get into a mood, and then, yeah, like sometimes people get worked up, like upsetting things have happened to you. Why wouldn't you get worked up? But like to him, he's discussing it like it's all this like bizarre and new and exotic and like foreign information. There's also a really long history in feminist literature and trauma literature of people writing about experiences often of trauma and kind of associating them with robotic identity, basically. So whether it's the Cyborg Manifesto, which is a feminist manifesto that compares womanhood to robothood or sort of like Tumblr blogs about trauma where people talk about feeling like a robot. That's a really common way of compartmentalizing and thinking about trauma. And I wonder whether that was at all purposeful or whether it's it makes sense for who Jack is as a character and kind of came up naturally. I'm not sure, but it definitely is in conversation with those things for me. 
Well, don't forget he's a hockey robot, and that's a pretty common that's a pretty common like stock concept in hockey media. The idea that you only play hockey and you are effectively programmed to move efficiently through your hockey career and you don't display a lot of emotions and you don't give a lot of like interesting, like well thought out or like deeply felt responses to reporters or whatever because you are programmed to basically be this like Canadian hockey playing robots. That is part of it, I think, that it's basically like Jack as the typical hockey player is is almost literally embodying what it means to be a typical hockey player. Uh, at the same time, if you recall, he was originally written in like, I don't know, the first draft of the first couple strips or whatever, like as a cyborg, as like a hockey playing cyborg, like literally he was going to be. And then I think uh, according to the back of the, the first Kickstarter volume and Gozi realized it like wasn't funny or something. So I think it's a little nod in that direction as well, perhaps more so than like a piece of feminist theory. But I also like that reading, obviously, because, you know, Jack is just like a, he's like a, how do I put this? You know, he's a big girl and, uh, you know, he's a big girl and uh, he's also part of a long standing history of feminist thought. <laughs> I mean, all I'm saying is that the Cyborg Manifesto is required reading when you want to join his bottom separatist commune, okay? That's that's really what I'm trying to say here. Do you here. think it is because... No, of course not. There's no requirement except being a bottom. Um, Jack is a true... He wants to democratize the bottom process. All right, anyway, okay, look. Uh, I don't think that this is purposeful at all, really, except maybe in the way that these ideas have sort of permeated our culture, like through sci-fi and through, through other conversations. But for me, the sort of like robotic nature that can come from trauma, which I would argue like the hockey media wouldn't say is what's happening to hockey robots, but I might say could potentially be like, oh yeah, being completely unable to feel or express emotions in any real way from a young age could be problematic I don't know well it's interesting to sort of get into this with hockey isn't it because there's kind of a chicken and the egg thing happening where on one hand maybe like everything you experience like on the ice or whatever traumatizes you and it causes you to become a robot in response to that on the other hand you're effectively being like trained to be a robot so you are protected from like the traumas you would experience in hockey and it, it really is a bit of like which came first would depend on the person. Sorry, what? Yeah, and then also it's like possibly like maybe the conditioning is part of the trauma as well. Yeah, totally. Jack thinking of himself as a robot is very near and dear to my heart though. I I like it. Some people have made the comment that they think he's implying here that he doesn't like being called a robot that it like hurts his feelings or whatever. And then I think building upon that, I've seen it basically as kind of like um, a critique of like ableist language that to call somebody who is on the spectrum a robot 
as if they don't have feelings, as if they are not human, is effectively like ableist. So Jack is responding in in that vein here that it hurts his feelings or whatever to be compared to a robot. Well, it's an interesting reading, isn't it? Uh, I don't I don't find it convincing either. I don't think he's supposed to actually be autistic and I don't think that he would have that much to say about this if he were. In the same way that it depends on intent and it depends on execution, the metaphor of robothood can both be empowering or sort of useful and also can be dehumanizing and problematic. But uh, yeah, I don't think that this much commentary is happening in this personally. And I think that the like a robot being in small font doesn't really make me feel like Jack's feelings are hurt and he's sad about it. I think it's just supposed to be kind of funny personally, but that's how I read it. This strip reminds me like why I like Jack Zimmerman. Like, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a big fat bitch. And he also is just like, you know, a, a, a dumb, sad idiot. Yeah. So I have a real soft spot for like deep repression of, oh, almost anything. And I think that that comes across in this strip as well. Jack continues to repress things until the end of the comic, like for example, his entire personality. But by at this point, you can still feel that he is learning how to navigate feelings and ideas in an interesting way. And that's really, I don't know, it's really like fun to be around it's fun to sort of like think about it's like he's so wistful in this strip it's it's like jack during this semester of the comic almost leading up to his crazy decision at the very end of it that ruins his life and and everyone else's life as well he's just so like wistful and this is like I'd say the closest he gets to like the affect that people tend to describe as like soft yeah I mean it's very if only right like if only he could have figured things out with Kent if only he could stay at Samwell forever instead of having to go into the cold, hard clutches of the NHL. I also think that's part of graduating from an experience that you've really loved and moving on to something else too. So I, I think it's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, you can only sort of begin to guess like what his feelings are because we don't get to fully access them here. And of course, we're experiencing them through Biddy, one of the world's least emotionally perceptive people. He's got I don't a know what- recipe for banana bread, but what else is there? And the thing is, like, it's it's hard to pull apart because we just don't get to know. Like, is Jack really sad that he's leaving Samwell because he's really loved Samwell and some part of him is like mourning the life he could have had if he didn't end up going and doing this hockey thing? Or is it sort of the other way around where it's like he knows that this thing has been sort of like an altogether brief roundabout way of getting where he's really meant to be. I think it's both. And that's part of why it feels so good to linger in, you know, but it's like, yeah, I remember graduating from college, you know, it was what, like four months ago or whatever. And 
Now, I, I graduated from college several years ago. Uh, it was not four months ago. When was four months ago? It's a good question. I guess that would be July. <laughs> um, this year has been 80 years, so yeah, about 1957, probably. <laughs> I remember being a senior in college and really having similar feelings, like very similar feelings my last semester in college about like, oh, it's ending. This is so sad. Every moment that I'm in is the last moment of moments and so on. Where did it go? This whole thing's been so quick, etc. It's a relatable feeling and you do really get the sense that Ngozi has at the point when she's writing this, graduated college now about what, like a year and a half previously. And the spirit that's coming through, through a lot of the first year of the comic is like best of college, like the wacky hijinks, like what makes it so great. But this is really like a, like a keenly observed and a well-expressed sentiment about what it's like to leave college and move on yeah i mean it's one of the more affecting moments it's i think ngozi writing about emotions kind of does best when everyone's not on the same page when everyone is on the same page i find the way that this comic at least writes about emotions to be pretty like not exciting at least for me it's like too pat but when everyone's not exactly on the same page whether because they are just in different parts of their life or they have different amounts of information or they have different motivations or whatever it, it's really effective and kind of like delicious um to just be emoting with those characters you know like i, I really feel for jack here i don't i want to linger in this moment in a particular way that I don't necessarily feel with like the rest of the strip, like, okay, Biddy does a cool jump. That's, that's cool. I don't, okay, fine. But then when we get to this, this couple of panels, it feels really bittersweet in a way that makes me want to kind of stay in it. Also, what does it say about shitty? Anything we can access this comment? Well, it's interesting kind of because shitty didn't explain this to you is like, so it's such an insane thing to say. <laughs> also like, no, <laughs> why would shitty be explaining how you work to your friends? Do you know what I mean? And it also kind of like points to this longer pattern that goes on of Jack just sort of like allowing the emotional work around him to be done by other people, uh, which we can talk about, especially once he and Biddy are in a relationship. Like I, I think that becomes very clear or at least as a pattern, it becomes more observable. But I really like this idea of shitty as sort of like Jack, here's what's happening but he's got this completely bonkers explanation which is like you're a robot instead of like you're having feeling that's kind of how i see it as a commentary on their friendship and kind of how shitty might take this more authoritative role in terms of like understanding who jack is and what jack does which i can see from shitty as a character he takes authority pretty frequently yeah i mean again it continues to be frustrating to me that we like very rarely see Jack and Shitty actually interacting, like in the comic. Like, I, you probably up to this point, it's been like a like two times or something like that. So it's interesting that so much of what we get about their relationship that doesn't come from like extras and paratext comes basically from like Shitty talking to Biddy about Jack. 
And then in that sense, it's interesting that here we get Jack speaking about Shitty and what he basically has to say is that Shitty thinks he understands me. This is what he has to say. People who are listening, which I'm sure is like, what, two, three people. One of those things that I would really love to read, but don't know if I'd like to write, is like a really good, really juicy, mid to long length fanfic that is like Jack and Shitty, maybe like Endgame. I would read the heck out of that. I really don't think it exists, which is so weird to me because up until I got to this dumb fandom that I've devoted going on five years of my life to, all of the things I had been really interested in, like shipping wise, were like best friend ships where it's like, oh, these two people who are best friends in the world also fuck. I don't get the sense that anybody is really interested in that in this fandom. I have written a Jack shitty fic, but it's basically like adultery. It's like one-off adultery. It's, it's not like a, it's also weird. So, I love that fic. Yeah. But that fic is also, I mean, not to be like, welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where I only talk about my own fanfic. But like, today we're going to be talking about this fanfic I wrote. I gave it some dumb name because I was thinking about how it's just really infrequent that you see over medium eggs hooked anywhere. And I was like, well, whatever, get my feelings out somehow. Title of a fanfic, which was originally posted. No. Um, <laughs> what that fanfic to a certain extent is about is that basically like Shitty has had this like long-term fixation with Jack and thinks he understands Jack like better than anybody else does. But does he question Mark read the fic and, and, and come talk to me if, if you're curious. But yeah, I think this is like a really interesting relationship and it's just like this one little stupid, like one off comment in the background of this, this particular strip that has far more interesting things going on in it. But I am just fascinated by how Shitty is effectively like a Jack Zimmermanologist and kind of has Jack's number, but also is like a Jack apologist. It's just like very weird. It's like very complicated. One of the great strengths of this comic, especially before things get really on message kind of later in the comic. Like, I think that the group dynamics and the different dynamics between each pairing of people is often really interestingly done and often really effective. And one of my favorite exchanges in the whole comic happens between Shitty and Jack in year three before 
anybody knows about Biddy and Jack's relationship. And of course, we'll talk about it. I love that exchange. I think it's so good. I think that this thing where Shitty thinks he knows Jack, but also in some ways doesn't know Jack at all, or like can't imagine the things for Jack that he wouldn't want for himself. I think that says so much about Shitty and so much about Jack. And I think that it, it kind of comes out in this little tiny moment here. That's kind of what I mean when I say that Shitty is reflecting to Jack things about Jack or kind of like teaching Jack how he operates. Yeah, I'm presuming it's the one where Shitty is like, you have a girlfriend and Jack is like, uh. What's what's really interesting about that is that Shitty basically is right on the nose and completely understands exactly what's going on. And his intuitions are entirely correct. The only thing that's incorrect is that because Jack is in the closet and Shitty has been deliberately led to believe that Jack is interested in dating women exclusively. He presumes that Jack has a girlfriend. But other than, you know, the mere fact of gender, which, of course, I consider to be no fact at all. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> ha other than that, yeah, I mean, it's like he he basically like he he's figured it out. Like he's basically gotten the whole thing. I mean, I think that's I think that's what it is. Right. You know, someone so deeply and you can reflect back to them exactly what's true. And yet there's some things you can't intuit or are led not to intuit or whatever. Like the gaps of that understanding are really compelling. I don't know. And then I think the one final thing that we have not mentioned that we have not juiced out of this lemon is that at the very end of the comic, Jack says, Ransom and Holster, you're captains for like the scrimmage. And of course they, they later become co-captains or rather assistant captains of the hockey team foreshadowing yeah a little a little foreshadowing oh sorry it's not, it's not like good foreshadowing no but it is what it is and what it is is foreshadowing i just had a couple things i wanted to say about the blog post one is that as we've said before ngozi often reiterates what we're supposed to care about in the blog post and one of the comments were ah yes here we are Another blog post where I'll answer questions you probably weren't even thinking about, and I'll make numerous vague hintings at things relating to the plot. Why do you read these? Do you want me to say Jack is going to kiss Biddy? Because I technically just did. Which I just bring up to point out, we talk a lot about the blog posts and kind of how they're deliberately coy, and this is just like, yep, they are deliberately coy. Don't forget, Ngozi knows all, Ngozi controls all. You know, like this is definitely very much a a sense of the authorial hand that I just wanted to point out as a continued pattern. Do you think she's doing this because she doesn't want to be accused of like queer baiting? Or do you think she's doing this because she just has like unbridled enthusiasm for her great comic? Or do you think she thinks that it really doesn't matter if people know that Jack and Biddy do end up kissing because the romantic tension isn't the main point of the comic for her? I 
I don't think it's the latter. I especially think because of the fandom base and kind of like the fandom related people who are reading it, like the romantic tension, I think is absolutely part of the comic. So I, and I think that Ngozi would consider it that at least for these two years. So I don't really think it's that. I have a sense that it's somewhere between the two. Like I definitely think it probably started in the same way that you know, you tag a fanfic and you're excited about it. So it's like with letting people know what's up and also like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for you to read about these two guys touching each other's butts, etc. I think given the time period this is being written, 2015, it's very possible that it's also like, don't worry, everybody, they're gonna kiss in order to avoid any kind of suggestion that this comic is crossing boundaries it shouldn't cross or something appropriating experiences that aren't appropriate to do that with I, I don't know yeah to me it's like do you want me to say jack is going to kiss biddy no don't say that like just let me read and figure it out lady like just just tell the story i definitely as everybody has heard me say i definitely was afraid they wouldn't because of having been burned many times before so i i think i appreciated it at the beginning This time around, I am like, oh my God, it's so heavy handed. Like, please trust me as a reader at all. I'm also a much stronger reader than I was when I first read the comic. There's also the fact that when I was reading these and they were coming out months and months and months apart, it it didn't feel as heavy handed. Biddy's Twitter is my fave, but I'm scared that I'll know what will happen in the comic and I won't enjoy the comics, which I'm mostly bringing up because um, because we discussed this in the last episode, talking about the difference between the Twitter and the the comic. And Gozi here says, hey, 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 it's okay if you don't believe me, but Biddy's tweets in the comics I've planned are very different. Remember Epic Hegster? Will you get spoiled? A little. I mean, it's almost like the episode titles for a TV show. You may know what happens, but you may not be able to guess how. If this level of spoilage leaves enough of a bad taste in your mouth, then the experimental asynchronous multi-platform social media experience that is Eric Biddle's Twitter account is something you may not want to partake in. Join me in looking up from your computer or phone screen. Take a deep breath. We're all going to be okay. Like, I do know people who are this obsessive about spoilers. Like, they do not want, like, to them, a spoiler is not like it was his sled or (laughs) whatever. Like, a spoiler to to them is not like Bruce Willis is dead at the end of Sixth Sense. By the way, spoilers for uh, Susan Cain and Sixth Sense. (laughs) Or, Or Jack and Biddy kiss at the end of year two and check, please. And then everything is fine. Spoilers for check, please. Um, Biddy, we're the same person the whole time. Yeah, that's right. No, um, Biddy was dead, and also it was his sled. Um, <laughs> actually, Biddy was Jack's sled. <laughs> hey, I've, I've, never seen, I've never seen Citizen K, and I like my understanding of it comes from like The Simpsons. <laughs> Uh, I would just like to say that I think it's very obvious that Jack is Biddy Sled. Thank you. Radio flyer. Um, I have friends who, to them, it's like, that's not a spoiler. A spoiler isn't, like, information about what happens that, like, destabilizes 
the sense of suspense. To them, a spoiler is literally any information about what the content of a piece of media is. And the people I know who are like this, incidentally, are not usually fandom people. So it's like, okay, my friend Jeff, who's never gonna listen to this, so sorry, Jeff, you're being called out. When the movie The Favorite came out, when was that? It must have been, what, like 17 or 18 years ago at this point? We were talking about it and he was like, oh, you know, this looks like a movie that you might be really into. And I was like, yeah. And we had a little conversation about it. And I mentioned something about it being gay. And he was like, oh, you're spoiling it. And I was like what do you mean I'm spoiling it? Like Queen Anne is a historic figure. Like this is a, this is a piece of history. And he was like, well, you're revealing to me what the movie is about. And I'm like, I like, I, is this not just like common knowledge? And he's like, no, you're ruining the movie for me. And I was like, the title of the movie is the favorites, a way of referring to, the typically same-sex lover of the monarch. And he was like, well, I didn't know that, and you just ruined the movie for me. That's wild, because knowing a movie is gay makes me wait. Like, it doesn't feel like a spoiler. It feels like an enticement. Although, also, I agree that the favorite... I mean, I admittedly, like, know a lot more about... um this topic, I mean, specifically like British history, than I'd say do most people. At the same time, like, I, I guess maybe I'm a little naive because I presume that this is one of like the, like the three things to know about Queen Anne, which are that she had like 17 children and they all died. She was fat as hell and she had this can't be historically proven, but based on the records, seems very homosocial relationship with one of her ladies in waiting. Like, I believe that is basically everything there is to know about this woman. Right? But then apparently I think there's some people who have no idea who she is or or, or what the, the context of her, her reign was, which is also okay. I feel like my knowledge of the British monarchy and also check please and also South Park is probably why I'm like not president elect right now. However, yeah, among among other among other reasons I'm sure. I'll write secret in on any ballot. <laughs> please don't, please don't waste your vote. <laughs> <laughs> whoever's whoever's running write them in um or or just vote for them <laughs> yeah all of this is to say is that like to some people i have learned any information about like what the content of a piece of fiction will be is in fact what they consider a spoiler so I feel like looking at it from that view, the way that Ngozi is writing about this maybe is like helpful information. I guess perhaps there are people who really don't even want like dissociated information about like what's gonna potentially happen in Chuck Please. But to me, this is just like wild. 
I think to me, it's just further confusing because if you post a goat and Gozi was saying, oh, you can look at the Twitter, but you don't have to, but you could. Here's one way you could do it, but you don't have to. And now she's saying again, you know, you don't have to, but it's like, yeah, we thank you, but I can hit a back button all I want. And in fact, my reading is mine. (laughs) I can do whatever with my attention, what I wish to do. So I I guess I just thought it was interesting that yet again, we see this kind of like weird relationship with the Twitter, which just feels really disintegrated from the rest of the comic, even though we're ideally looking at both at the same time. And it's, and it's just really strange to me. Oh, I think I got it all out. I think I got it all out there. I feel bad that I like drag Jeff and, um, Jeff is safe. He'll never listen. He'll never know. Give me the name of a British monarch and I'll, I'll tell you something about them. Unless uh, they're one of, one of the ones I don't know anything about. Charles II. Charles II was the son of Charles I. And when he was a boy, his father was deposed by Cromwell and the, the English Civil War. And so he spent actually a huge amount of his youth pretty much as a refugee, sort of like growing into his role as the leader of the royalist forces. And he really took the the doctrine of divine uh, monarchy very seriously. But he also like had a really traumatic childhood because so much of it was spent basically like, you know, going from like secret safe house to secret safe house of, you know, like secret royalist um, sympathizers and so on and so forth. And he really had like a pretty like jerked around kind of scary experience up until the point when the um, throne was reinstituted and he came into power. There's a very, very famous story about how he one time basically like survived a battle by like hiding in a tree when Cromwell's forces were basically basically like marching through the area. And I think that story is actually true in the sense of like how anything from the time could be true. But um, yeah, he got onto the throne and he had, you know, like a, a more developed relationship with his mistress than than did he with his uh with his queen and he really strengthened the british monarchy by doubling down on the divine rule concept i believe you i don't know very much about him all i remember about him is that he was the king during the era of restoration comedy, um, which is uh, very raunchy. And I know more about Offer Bain than I do about Charles II. I can't imagine putting this in check displeased, but I don't know. We'll see what we'll see what I'm feeling when we get to editing this episode. Wait, who's the Han- who's the Hanoverian dynasty? It was um, George the First, George the Second, George the Third, George the Fourth, and then William the Fourth. Okay. 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 And then William was succeeded by Victoria, and mm-hmm. that dynasty is typically called like 
Saks Coburg or something like that. And then because of um, Albert and then um, it's Victoria, Edward the seventh, George the fifth, and then George V was king during the First World War, and he changed the name of the family to Windsor. So they had mm-hmm. sort of been like Germans, basically, since the death of Queen Anne. Yeah, gotcha. And George I of Hanover was invited to... I can't... Whatever. We got to be done. We got to be done. <laughs> uh, wow. I just looked at images of all of these monarchs as you were telling me about them, and I don't remember anything about any of them, so I feel edified. Um, if people want to know more about, you know whatever where can they find you well my name's secret thanks for asking and i can be located at camillier c-a-m-i-l-l-i-a-r where my icon is a picture of uh camilla the duchess of cornwall (laughs) and uh you know when she was a young lady a young lass young broad that's on tumblr and then my other Tumblr is secret, OMG, S-K-R-T-O-M-G. And if you want to read my fanfic, it's on AO3 at familiar. And you can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. My picture is just of a geranium that I took a picture of in 2013 at my parents' house. Um, so it has nothing to do with the British monarchy. And frankly, I feel like that picture represents everything I know about everything, which is nothing. Uh, and then you can also find us at checkdisplease.tumblr.com and where else? Podbean and Spotify. Well, that's all I got. Yeah. Next time we'll be back with 211 junior show where jack zimmerman is not depicted crawling through a vagina but don't worry he does off screen (laughs) well he does i know he does how's he feel about it we'll talk about that next time He seems pretty unfazed. All right. Okay. We're signing off. God bless every one of you listeners. God bless all of you and each of us. Good night. pulls it out he's like i crushed it (laughs) you could make you could make a smoothie middle (laughs) biddy stands there for a minute like what and then jack is like oh i'm sorry banana bread (laughs) pancakes you like pancakes don't you biddle But here's the thing, if it was Biddy's idea, like, obviously, obviously, they would get up to some, like, banana stuff. It would have a condom on it. So it would be, like, 
you know, it wouldn't be like unsanitary, but then yeah, Biddy probably would make like banana bread out of it and like make Jack eat it. He'd be like, eat the whole thing, eat the whole loaf. You can't leave the table until you eat the whole loaf. I definitely see that. Or they invite Shitty and Lardo over and like prepare and share the banana bread. <laughs> Biddy just makes Jack like watch Shitty be like, mm, yum. <laughs> Banana <laughs> like great great banana bread bro or like whatever <laughs> he's like he's like you'll never guess the secret ingredients <laughs> <laughs> and shitty's like haha love <laughs> that's corny even for you or like whatever and Benny's yeah. like yeah, just I'm I'm just a little stereotype like that or whatever. He's got like his hands folded, like yeah, just a grimace of a grin on his face. Jack shifts uncomfortably. Um, listen, they're in love, love and it's great. Uh, anyway, check this please is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.